Let's turn to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to just continue our series on the book of Acts. Last night we were at the rodeo, and that was incredible. That was an amazing experience. Um, one of my favorite parts was the mutton riding or the mutton busting. Is that what you call it? Oh my gosh, that was great. And... Uh, my in-laws, which are living in Poland, are going to be amazed at what happens here with children being trampled down by sheep. <laughs> They're going to be like, what are you going to do to our grandkids if you get kids? Acts chapter 9. And I just want to um, look at Saul's life this morning together with you. How God called Saul and just made him Paul. When we think of um, who he is and what his story is, I think it's just one of the most encouraging um, accounts in the New Testament. And let's read in 1 Timothy um, two portions of Scripture that describe Paul, where Paul describes himself. And I think that sometimes when we look at Paul, the great apostle of the New Testament, the missionary, the five-star general in the kingdom of God, the missionary, the apostle, the preacher, the pastor, the one that uh, suffers so much for the gospel's sake. We think that he really was a saint. You know, we really think that, you know, we have this picture. I don't know if you grew up Catholic or not, but maybe this picture of this man in long robes and the halo around his head. Well, this was not Saul. Initially, And let's read a little bit about his commentary of his life. The saying in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. And the next scripture is in, first, is in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 through 15. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently. Now look at the words, the adjectives he uses here. I persecuted, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And I just want to hit the pause button there and just go into a few points. Paul was notorious, one of the most famous citizens of the Roman Empire, and without question, one of the most influential individuals in history. Paul was, when we look at Paul, what he was used by God to do, he was used by the Lord to set in motion a great deal of the organization known today as the Christian church, the body of Christ on earth, to the extent that billions of human beings have been directly or indirectly affected by Paul's ministry. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the foundation, foundational documents for the Christian way of life, the word of God, which has changed millions of lives and is still changing lives today. This is how God used this incredible man. There's three things I want us to look at in Paul's, before we start reading the, um, 
the chapter 9, verse 1. I, there's three things I want us to uh, keep in mind as we read through this chapter. We're going to do a lot of reading this morning. So um, if you don't have a Bible, then look on with someone or look up on the screen. Three things that we can see about Paul's conversion. Number one, um, God, God works most unlikely through people, and he converts them, and he changes their lives, and he transforms their lives. We look at Paul, and we could say, this guy was a terrorist. He could be a modern-day terrorist on the news. He's a man that, um, which he called himself in 1 Timothy, that we had just read, the, the chief of sinners. He said, I am the worst, and he understood his level of where God had, come, had taken him out of. God chose him to be his messenger, the gospel to the Gentiles. And he had three, he had three aspects in his ministry. Uh, he had an aspect to the Gentiles. Uh, he, had, he had a ministry to the Jews, to the Jewish people. And he had also a ministry to the church, the brand new church that had been born in Acts chapter 2. And it's in Isaiah 59 verse 1, it's amazing to see that, there, that God's hand is not shortened to be able to save anyone. Sometimes we look at people, and we could look at Saul, and we could say, that guy is the incarnation of evil. You ever look at someone on TV, or you ever look at something and just say, maybe someone in your family and say, that guy is never going to get saved. That girl is never going to make a decision for Christ. Well, the Lord's arm is not too short to save. And even more so, one of the things we see about Paul's life is that God's power is made, made, made strong and made perfect in Paul's weakness in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Grace is amazing because the grace of God is like water. And we see this in Paul's life. Whenever it rains, and we had some rain this week, didn't we? Whenever it rains, and maybe I've used this illustration before, but when there's a lot of water moving, where does water go first? It goes to the lowest part. It goes to the lowest hole. It goes to the lowest vacuum because nature abhors the vacuum. And if there's any vacuum, nature will rush to fill it. This is like the grace of God. If there's any vacuum in a person's life, if there's any hole, if there's any, any place that is just uh, empty, that is just not being filled with God, then God will race in with his grace. Maybe that could be a hole of guilt or condemnation or maybe a, a hole of just memories that haunt people. But grace like water flows to the lowest point and fills that point, and then from there moves upward. This is the amazing grace that is working in our lives today. Paul later on says in his, in his uh, epistle to the Corinthians, he said that, he said, I labored, but grace labored the more in me. Grace is active and it's moving. You know, in Ephesians 1 verse 6, and we see this in Paul's life, the more grace that is needed and received, focus on me here for, for, for a few moments here, the more grace that's needed and received, the greater God is glorified. We want to glorify God in your life? We want to glorify God in our life? You know, many of us, we pray in the morning, God, may you be glorified in my life. Be careful because God may answer that prayer in a way where he may put you in a place of great need and a great weakness where you just have to say, God, give me grace. I need to receive your grace today. Grace, what does that mean? Remember what that means? And I don't want to give you the Sunday school um, definition of that. 
Grace is basically the, the, the mindset of God. It's the economy of God in his plan of salvation, meaning that God wants to bless you and I in a way that we could never qualify for. You know, maybe we're just starting off in our lives in certain aspects. You know, maybe we're just starting a family. Maybe we're just starting a new aspect, a new era <clears throat> in our lives with God. Think with God about this on this level. God wants to bless my family. God wants to give me something. And I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel here. I'm just saying that God wants to actively work in your life, in your mission, and what you're doing in your family and in your job and in your business and your child rearing, God wants to bless you in a way that you and I could never qualify for. Isn't that awesome? So let's just stop trying to qualify. <laughs> just wake up in the morning and just say, you know what, before my feet hit the floor, I am a success story with God, and there's not an ounce of more righteousness that God could give to us. Isn't that awesome? But we are just, I mean, Paul, we're going to look at it in a second here. We are just people, we're just creatures that are filled with guilt, with hidden guilt, with anxiety and loneliness. And we want to, next week, Lord willing, I want to talk about suffering, you know, unjust suffering and, and how Paul dealt with it. And, you know, we, we, we are creatures that so easily get separated in our minds from the love of God. We forget that God's for us. And it turns, in, our life turns into some kind of works program. We're like, God, I'm working hard for you. You know, I want to do the right thing. You know, Paul said, I want to do the right thing in Romans chapter 7. He said, but there's no power in my life to do it. He said, there's no power. And he said, what did he say in, in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 20, in the following verses? Oh, wretched man that I am. And that's not just for men. You know, women can put, oh, wretched. We'll just be very, yeah, careful. <laughs> that I am, who will deliver me from this, this what? This, this, this wretched flesh, this body of death. And what does he say later on? Where's deliverance? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The most, I think one of the most amazing chapters in the book of Romans. Maybe one day we'll just go through the book of Romans in, Sunday, in a Sunday series. Just love this. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then the King James translators help themselves to add another part to it that's a bit conditional. And we want to just, we, we want to look at the Greek there and just hit a, hit a period right there. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, period. If we are in Christ Jesus today, if you've made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you said yes to God in your life, then there's just, you are not living under condemnation. We are not living under condemnation. We're not walking around like a criminal. When I was in Europe, you know, the system there in Europe is just very, I mean, it's just very, I don't know, just very systemized. Everything's very systemized. Lots of lines, lots of borders, lots of things you can't do. And, and when you try to, when I was renting a car to go take our mission trip to Serbia, you're treated, and this is in no way to indict the, the precious people over there, but it's just a system. You're treated like a criminal until, you're, you're, until you prove yourself innocent by returning the car unscratched with all, the, with all the dots, you know, with all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. This world system is going to treat you and I as a criminal because this is the, world, this is the way the world system sees individuals. Because this system does not love people. This world system... This educational system is not our friend. I don't 
mean to say that you know we're like extremists or separatists. I'm just saying that the that the root of the roots the root foundation of this world system is is not is not pro Christ. It's not it's not loving God. It's anti Christ, isn't it? It's anti Christ, and we forget that sometimes because we see nice personalities and we see like friendly signs and we see. You know, the, 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 the mirage that the world portrays and says that it's all good. It's all good. I need to get going in my, in my outline here. Um, the more grace needed, the greater God is glorified. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Number two, conversion happens in Paul's life when he sees the real Christ. Conversion happens when people see the real Christ and not a Christian religion. You know, I remember as a kid, you know, like a teenager, walking by churches thinking, you know what, I am never going in that building, you know. I just saw these buildings, I don't know about you, but I walk by these buildings, or ride my bike or whatever I was doing, and I'd be like, I am not going in that building. Because, I don't know, I was not seeing Christ, I was seeing a system of religion. You know, Paul was converted, not after a long period of just torment and feeling guilty about his responsibility of Stephen stoning in Acts chapter 7, and I heard that the guys preached on Acts 7 and Acts 8 and there were some great messages. Paul doesn't tell us about his own experience. Paul doesn't tell us that, oh, after a long period of just remorse and just reflecting over my sin and being sorry, and he said, no, it was instantaneous because conversion, real conversion happens when a person sees Jesus Christ. And I think that that's what our vision, this is what my heart, my vision in this church will be when we become the church that we will become. I just want to see, I want to have people see Jesus Christ. You know, I just want people to see him lifted up. I don't want him to see anything else but the glorious Logos, the Rhema of God, the Word of God. Because I think that if we lift up Jesus Christ, then he's going to draw people to himself. And this is what's attractive about our church. And I think this is what's attractive about our people and our team here is that, you know, when we fill this place out and we, we do our hard launch, which will probably be next year, I think that what's going to be attractive about us is not necessarily the cool, the, the cool stuff we got here, which is really cool already. I'm loving it. I just think it's so awesome. But I think it's going to be like, you know what? Jesus is in that church. You know, they're, they're glorifying Jesus Christ. And it's not just one slice of society. It's going to be a wide spectrum of society. And, you know... Paul had a calling before he was born. I, I love this principle in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Think of this with me this, this morning. Paul had a calling before he was born. Isn't that amazing? Before you and I were born, in our mother's womb, we were called. Isn't that amazing? That's just so awesome. I love to think about that. What does that tell us? That before we, Paul had a history as Saul, he had a calling to be in Christ. So amazing. Before you and I were born and had our crazy history, Psalm 51 says that David said, I was born speaking lies. You know, little babies born. I'm sure that many of us that have babies can testify to this, you know, that little kids learn <laughs> very quickly how to give the wrong impression about something. David said, I was born speaking lies. But you know something? Before the history of David, before our history, that you, that you and I, all the things that happened to us, all that craziness, all the stuff that we did, all the stuff we didn't do, all the stuff we said. You know, before all of that, God said, I am calling this person. 
I'm calling Johnny. I'm calling Joshua. I'm calling Michael West. I'm just calling, calling these people. Like, there's a calling in our life. Isn't that amazing? Like we're called. And I love that because we don't have to worry about everything that we've done in our past. What is the main, what is the main focus in our life is, is that our life began with a call on it. Isn't that amazing? Martin Luther said this, I am nothing. My calling is everything. One of my favorite quotes. Isn't that beautiful? You know, like, we're, I just, like, we, we are something. We're having a wonderful life. I'm just really enjoying my life, especially in Texas. Rodeo is, like, that is awesome. That's just, my wife and I were in a state of shock. You know, we're just, we didn't even know, we kind of wish we had people that were, that were there before with us, because we're just kind of wandering around, like, wow, where do we even go, you know? Wandering around from these booths and stuff like that, and finally found the section where we're supposed to be, and we sat down and just watched the whole thing, and I just thought, you know, God is just, God has just given us an awesome life, hasn't he? Animals running around, you know, kids hanging on to these, <laughs> these mutton busts. And that was the best right there. Yeah. This one kid, like, he just rode that, that mutton all the way. And the mutton just ran right into a whole group of the other muttons. Kid goes flying. He just gets up, and he's like, yeah. It's like a five-year-old kid. It's like, these Texans are out of their minds. Awesome. You know? This mutton was trampling down over these other kids. and. Kid got, got up, he can't even walk, but he's like, you know, everybody's cheering. We have a calling before our flesh history begins. I love that. But Saul, let's look at chapter 9, verse, verses 1 through 2. But Saul, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, still meaning here, the word meaning that he is continuing. Stephen, the first martyr of the Bible, is murdered right in front of Saul. Unbelievable. And his clothes are laid right at Saul's feet. Saul's not even faced. Verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So he goes to, he goes to, he goes to the bigwigs in Jerusalem and says, I need more letters of authority so I can go to Damascus. And he found, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul here is breathing threats and murders against Christians. Some translations don't put the word murder in there, but I think the, uh, the English Standard Version does. That in the Greek it says that Paul was breathing murder. Uh, he was taking the persecution 150 miles north to Damascus. What's 150, what's 150 miles north of Houston? What's that going to be? Like, imagine that, like, you know. It's like way up there, you know? And I mean, Saul is like taking, he's taking his campaign. He is dead set on finding men, women, and children that are Christians in the way and taking them and having them, and having them murdered or having them put in prison. A.T. Robertson says this, and don't get lost if we get, get into a little Greek here, but the partitive genitive of Apelles, which is the word for threats, and phono, which is murder, Listen to this, means that the threatening and slaughter had come to the very breath that Saul breathed. Oh my gosh, this guy breathed this stuff. He would wake up and just like we're breathing the coffee fumes in the morning or whatever we're drinking in the morning, tea or something like that, he is breathing threats and murder. Are we getting the picture here? That this is a really bad guy? A.T. Robertson continues, he said, he was like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. 
He breathed on the remaining disciples the murder that he had already breathed in the, in the death of the others. And he ex- exhaled what he had inhaled. So he says three times, and not only was it men, but it was also women, three times he mentions himself that women were part of this plot and cruelty. This way that Paul was fighting, we see later on that he becomes converted and he becomes a missionary for the way. Isn't that amazing? If you, we fight that way, and who is the way? Jesus Christ is the way. When we see people fighting the way, it's amazing how the power of the grace of God just reverses everything. The, rever- the, the reversal power of God's grace is amazing. I just... I think that's the greatest message we could be preaching. We could just preach that the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. The powerful, trans- transforming work of the grace of God. When an individual like Saul, I'm getting ahead of myself, discovers that God loves him and has a call for him and has a plan for him, it's just amazing. Another great quote that I read by Tannehill. Listen to this. The Lord's work is revealed through events that overthrow human expectations. Listen to this. Humans calculate the future on the basis of their normal experience you and i are calculating the future based on our normal experiences this is what paul's doing he's like i'm just going to do this i'm going 150 miles north to damascus and i'm going to just get these people but listen to this Tannehill continues and he says these calculations leave them unprepared for the appearance of the over ruler capital o who is jesus christ who is god who negates human plans and works the unexpected. Praise the Lord, isn't it? I just love the reversals in the Bible. You know, it just, that's the most amazing thing about the Bible is that there's just these unbelievable reversals. This way is an amazing way. This, this life as a Christian. This is what Paul hated. Paul looked at Christianity and said, this is a very dangerous movement because people are getting converted. People's lives are being changed. Uh, apostles Peter and John and these guys are in the temple preaching. People are getting healed. Uh, The word is getting out. They're speaking languages they've never, ever spoken before. And because it was shaking the very structure of the Judaic religion that was so carefully casted over the centuries, Saul said, this is very dangerous. Let me tell you this. When God begins to work in your life in the smallest or the greatest ways, and things begin changing, and you start thinking a little differently, and you start thinking with God about your life, I don't think the devil's going to stand by and just sit and watch and clap and say, hey, good job. You know, we actually don't really even see the devil until we start making decisions by faith in our life. Then we see the devil. We're like, whoa, what is that? You know, be not, don't be afraid because the devil's been defeated. And he, he is just, he has no power over the believer. I remember living in Ukraine, and my wife will remember this. We were doing evangelism, and it was just amazing to see what God was doing. We, we met this one young lady. <clears throat> Her name was Tanya. And uh, she came to us, and she said, um, I've met people from your group, and she was a witch. <laughs> she said, I tried to cast... Did I tell this story before? She said, I tried to cast spells on, on, on your people, and it didn't work. And... And she says, I want to know who these people are. I want to know who you guys are, that you have something more than I do. And um, in those days, in the 90s, in the Ukraine, in that former Soviet Union, there was a lot of this, because of the, because of the absence of the oppressive communist system left, there was this huge vacuum. 
and all witchcraft and all this weird stuff started filling it because there was no there were no churches there at the time not very few churches that were there preaching the gospel and teaching and we said you know what he who is in us is greater than he who that is trying to be in you and she got saved made this got made it made an amazing decision came into our church and became our translator which is amazing to see what God did in her life God's work overthrows human expectations. Isn't that amazing? I just love it. I just love that. Let's look at chapter 9 again, and let's look at verses, the next few verses, verses 3 through 5. Now, as, they went, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? <clears throat> Interesting question. Who are you? And then he says, Lord. Very interesting perception here. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was on his way until he met the way. Saul was on his little, little way, and he meets the great way. Saul's sight, and he's blinded here. What blinded Saul was not the sun. Some people say, well, maybe the sun got in his eyes. The sun was not what blinded him, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, thinking about this during this week and I thought what would blind a person when they start understanding who Jesus Christ is in Ephesians 1 verse 18 what happens is, is when you have so much darkness in your life like Saul did and there's so much darkness and suddenly there's an amazing revelation of who God is <clears throat> the amazing revelation of grace amazing revelation of the finished work the amazing revelation of, God, of God's love for us that is a blinding thing what is it blinding? It's not blinding us. It's just blinding the flesh, our fleshly eyes. When you and I start perceiving things about the grace of God, and if you hang in there over the next few months, God's going to just show us also amazing things from the Word of God about how amazing He is and how amazing the, the grace of God is. And as He does this, what you know going to start happening is that our fleshly eyes are going to be blinded. We're not going to be able to understand it. Because when we talk about the supernatural grace of God, the flesh cannot understand that. When we talk to people about God's grace and God's amazing nature, unless the Holy Spirit is enlightening our minds through just a humble attitude of God, teach me, we're not going to understand that. When a, when a person looks at grace through the eyes of the flesh, through natural opinion, through human rationalization, you know what the conclusion is? One of two things. Compromise or well, actually, they're both the same thing. Compromise or tolerance. That God is just tolerating this. You know, that's what the Muslims, when you share the gospel with a Muslim, and you try to explain to them the gospel, and you ask them this question, who forgives your sin as a Muslim? They're going to always say, generally going to say, after sticking with the Quran, they're going to say, oh, God is a merciful God. And he kind of, basically they're saying that God winks. But, you know, grace is something that needs to be, have our eyes open to that, and when Paul, when Paul is asked that question, or Saul is asked that question, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is making a statement to Paul. And this is why Paul said, who are you? This is amazing. Who are you? Why does he say this? Because Paul, or Saul, is under the impression that he is working for God. That he is under the impression that he's doing the Lord's work. That he's under the impression that he is like his like Moses and, and uh, Phineas and all of the other great men of the Old Testament, that he is a defender of the true faith. And so when Jesus appears to him, 
Paul, that Saul doesn't even recognize who Jesus is. And Jesus says, in, in essence, he's saying, you're not persecuting my followers. You're not persecuting my disciples. You're persecuting me. And I just want to make a statement here. It is said um, that 90,000 Christians lost their lives. They were murdered in the year 2016. They died. That's what Breitbart states, probably more. The Pope said 110,000. Um, that's a lot of Christians. That's a lot of people, people that are dying. Uh, one, one headline I read somewhere that Christianity is the most unpopular minority as far as what the news is report, reporting about the persecution. You're hearing about everything else on the news, even conservative news, but we're not hearing about the biggest, hugest thing that's going on right now, the murdering and the persecution of Christians. This is unbelievable. And when we look at persecution, we've got to understand that, that whatever the agency or the government or the people or the ethnic group is that are killing Christians, they are not trying to kill Christians. It is a satanic movement to actually attack the personhood of who Jesus Christ is, the anointed of God. This is an anti-Christ movement. Acts 9, verses 6 through 9, let's read these. But rise and enter into the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So here is Saul on the ground. He has been wiped out by this, the, the, the presence of Christ. I love that. You know, Jesus, remember when Jesus is being arrested, and the, and the soldiers come to him, and Jesus is asked, are you Jesus? I think that's how it goes. And he says, I am he. <laughs> when he says that, all the soldiers fall backwards, you know. This is not us being slain in the spirit experience. This was, this was the real thing. This was Jesus Christ saying, I am, and they all fell backwards. And Jesus says to Paul, rise, enter into the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Remember that. I want to mention something there. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither did he eat or did he drink. Saul in his blindness was told to take steps of faith. Um, Saul was, did not know what was going on. He had to take steps of faith in obedience to Jesus not knowing where he was going. Because that is the issue. And I want to make this a point for us to remember we, like Saul, are made are asked to take steps of faith in our life in a direction of a voice that we're hearing from God. And listen to this, listen to this verse. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. I just want to say that that's the state today of religion. They hear a voice, but they don't see the one that's speaking. This is true blindness. This is what's happening today in the world. The people are hearing... They are hearing something, but they are not seeing the person of Jesus Christ. Is this amazing? Think of that. That they are hearing something. Maybe, I don't want to indict religion today, but this could be happening today. That there are people speaking about God. They're hearing a voice, but they're not seeing Jesus Christ. I just want to wrap this up. Let's look at this here with, with the disciple Ananias in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. 
The Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, and behold, he is praying. At least Saul knew what to do. He said, You know what? I just have had a major, a major interaction with Jesus Christ, whom I thought was a heretic. And he begins to pray. And as he, as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias says in verse 13, and he says this, and, and this is rightfully so, this is understandable that he would say this, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil has been done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who will call upon your name. And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias departed, in verse 17, and entered the house, laying his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, love that, Brother Saul, isn't that awesome? This is for Saul, I just want to mention something about this in a minute. Brother Saul, Ananias by faith, just like Saul had to go by faith, Ananias goes to Saul, calls him brother Saul by faith, and he says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you had came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, then he rose and he was baptized. He gets baptized before he even eats. That's amazing. And then taking food in verse 19 he was strengthened for the days he was with the disciples. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Just a couple last points here. Ananias says, here I, here I am, Lord. Here my Lord. Some of us in this, in, this, in this text that we're reading are placing ourselves in the place of Saul. Some of us are placing ourselves in the place of Ananias. Ananias was a simple disciple but available to God. We don't know any history about who this guy is, and we don't really hear about him later on either. He was just a man serving God in a geographical location, and he was just obedient, and then says, God, God says, you know what? I got something I need you to do, and you're the nearest guy. I'm going to send you to Saul. And he says, here am I, Lord. God be- this man became God's point man. So Saul, like Saul, Ananias has to walk by faith. He has to, he has to, Ananias has to take Saul's reputation in contrast to God's reputation and say, I'm going to trust God's reputation greater than Saul's reputation. Part of Paul's suffering included, part of Paul's calling included suffering. And I want to hit that next week because I don't think we have time to hit that today. Here's a big point, and I want to close with these two points. The first person Paul saw was who? After Jesus. After his scales came off his eyes. Just hit me the other day. Who's the first person that Saul sees after the scales come off? Of course, Ananias, right? The body of Christ. (laughs) You know, people get saved, but there's a secondary revelation that God wants to give to people after they get saved. And I don't think that this is really taught so much. I think this is one of the most important things, that after we make a decision for Christ, guess what happens? The scales come off, and we see the body of Christ. We see Ananias. We, like Ananias, are called to take steps of faith in the Great Commission and make disciples of people that we naturally not want to do. This is our calling. Some of us are Ananias in this room, you know. We're hearing reputations about things in the world. We're like, I don't want to go down there. 
you know, one of these Friday nights, I'm going to go downtown and I want to connect with some of our friends and just do some ministry on the street to the homeless. And if any of you are interested in doing that, let me know. We want to head down there and do that one Friday evening. Take some bag lunches that are already made. Just find people in the streets that are homeless. Give it to them and just share the gospel with them. Say, you know what? God is for you. He loves you. And he wants to take you to another place in your life. I want to do that. That's what we're called to do. We are like Ananias. We also want to do a baptism. I'd like to do a, bapti- a baptism in the month of May sometime or in April. And let's do that. Let's plan to do that. We're going to have a, a little meeting on this coming week with some of the guys. We're going to put that in the schedule. And the second thing here with Saul is, is that Saul, like Paul, God calls us into a body, <clears throat> a place where we belong, where we are going to get healed from our blindness. And we are face-to-face when the scales come off, we're face-to-face with discipleship. Here's Saul looking at Ananias. Not some amazing, great guy. He just wasn't Ananias. And there he is face-to-face to him. And then he is the first step in, in, Saul's, in Paul's discipleship. I, wanna, I just want to finish with this, from this little illustration. Remember when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? It's one of the most impactful pictures I can think of. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. One commentator said that Jesus had to call out Lazarus' name. I think Spurgeon said this. You know, Jesus had to call out, he had to say Lazarus. Because when he, if he didn't say Lazarus, because of the power of the resurrection of Christ, everyone in, the, in that grave would have just risen up and walked forward. And I think you've heard that before. But he says, Lazarus, no, just Lazarus. Everybody, you stay where you're at. Come forth. And so, he, and so this guy emerges from the cave, you know, all wrapped up like a mummy, right? And then what does Jesus say to the disciples? He says, go unravel him, unbandage him. And that's the body of Christ, isn't it? Jesus isn't over there taking the bandages off. It's people. It's real life people that get into our life and they're like, okay, I know this is going to hurt, but you know what? God's for you. I'm, gonna, I'm just encouraging you. I'm investing you. I'm discipling you. I'm going to just take this bandage off, this this this, this uh, self-defense mechanism, this band-aid that's not going to help you, this has got to come off, and you've got to get exposed to the grace of God, to the body of Christ. And that's what we're all about. That's what we want to do. We want to expose you to an amazing Jesus Christ. This is what this team is all about. This is what we want to do with our kids and with Houston. Amen. Face-to-face with discipleship, and let's grow in our calling. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, God just for the conversion of Saul, Lord, that what is impossible with man is possible with God, Lord. And that hand of the Lord is not shortened that he may save by many or by few. We just thank you, God, that with all boldness we can come forward and we can say to a person that may be so intimidating, say, God loves you. He called you before you were born. He's got a plan for your life. Just surrender to that. And when we do that, we're part of a miracle in somebody else's life. Lord, this week, we want to just talk to somebody about Christ. Lord, this week, we ask you to bring someone across our path where we can say, you know what? God has a plan for you. He died for you. He loves you. Lord, teach us personal evangelism. Give us boldness to say to somebody, you know what? Hey, I was like you, but now I'm, I'm set free in my life. But I just want to challenge us this morning to share the gospel with somebody, share your testimony with someone, say, you know what, I don't know a lot, but I just know that that since Jesus came into my life, since I started making decisions for God, the 
bandages are coming off and I'm getting healed. If you're here this morning and you've never made a decision for Christ, maybe you're a believer like Saul, thinking you're about doing God's will. Jesus is here and he wants to come into your life and he wants to, he wants to save you, wants to forgive you, and wants to deliver you from all your guilt and pain and suffering. And he wants to give you a brand new life wants to introduce you to an Ananias to the body of Christ. Just say yes to God today. Dear Jesus, be my Savior. I receive your forgiveness and let your blood be upon me for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, God, for this precious time together. In Jesus' precious name, we pray these things.